So I got this pamphlet on interstitial cystitis and how to cope with it. I was so excited. I finally had something with a real diagnosis. And I opened this booklet to a random page. And at the top of the page, it said, to keep from committing suicide, remind yourself of your religious beliefs. Oh, no. Oh, no. I was like, okay, that's the treatment for this disease I've got. Hello and welcome to your great podcast with your host, Unique Hammond, me. This is a space where I am sharing healing stories and tools for better health. I wanted to create this space for those seeking inspiration along their healing path. One of the things I learned on my own healing journey is that it wasn't just about healing my body, it was healing my relationship to my body with food and with my emotional and spiritual body as well. Today's guest is Dr. Martha Beck, a New York Times bestselling author, life coach, and speaker. She holds three Harvard degrees in social science, and Oprah Winfrey has called her one of the smartest women she knew. Martha is passionate and engaging teacher, known for her unique combination of science, humor, and spirituality. Her newest book, one of my favorites, The Way of Integrity, Finding the Path to Your True Self was an instant New York Times bestseller, and for good reason. You guys, the tools in that book will both wake you up, challenge you, and ultimately bring you home to your essential self. I love this book so much. Martha's work has literally changed the course of my life. Over 15 years ago, when I was Going through a pretty messy divorce, I took her life coaching course in Utah, and it was really the lifeline I needed to get through a time in my life that would just completely break my heart from, for many reasons, but it would also ultimately set me free. My life has always been this theme of going through difficult times to get to better times, to be a better version of myself, to gain tools for better living. Nothing has ever come really easy for me, and that's that's okay. I'm on to it now, so it's all good. I now have this deep belief in my ability to really be okay with whatever comes my way. I don't often worry about the future anymore just because if there has been one thing I've been taught is that I have no idea what's coming next. But anyway, I'm currently enrolled in her life coaching course for the second time because I realized I could bring more of these tools to the work I do with my clients because a lot of my clients will create the help that they want and revert back to old patterns. I mean, I see it again and again. And then with the old patterns comes the old, old health ailments. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Martha and I'll be talking to you soon. Martha, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Your work has really transformed my life and in my darkest (laughs) in my darkest hours when I was sick and not sleeping for years I read a lot of your books and they really helped inform kind of a deeper look at my own suffering and where I needed to grow in my life to get in alignment with myself so I could actually take care of myself because I found when I was out of alignment my body was just an appendage that I was dragging around interesting Mm -hmm. What an interesting way to put it. I've never heard anyone say it quite like that. Yates uh, said he lived tied to a dying animal. Mm. But an appendage is, I I really identify with that. I think a lot of people know what you're talking about. 
Yeah, it just, it, I felt like it was a burden. It was something I compared to everybody else's meat suit. Mm -hmm. Is this one okay? Is mine okay? Yours looks pretty good. What are you doing? You know, it was like, right. <laughs> <laughs> it was this living through comparison, which as we know, is just a losing game. Yeah. Quick road to insanity, that one. Yeah. <laughs> Never good enough, ever. Ever, ever, ever good enough. So a lot of my clients are dealing with health imbalances. And not to say that everybody's health imbalances um, mean that they're out of alignment, but in an interesting way, in my journey, I was able to mistreat my body because in a weird way, it almost wasn't my body. It was, more. Yeah. <laughs> it was just there to serve my brain. It was just there yeah. to serve what I thought I should be doing and yeah. how I thought I should look. And it was all thought, right? It wasn't how I feel. And and my body was saying rest. And I was like, rest? Why would you do that? That's what fools do. <laughs> so many people tell me, you know, I just, you tell me to follow my bliss, but I have no bliss. I have no passion. I have no joy. And I'm like, how does rest sound to you? And they're like, yeah, but that's not a thing. And I'm like, I beg to differ. <laughs> like most of us need to rest before we try anything else. I would love for you to share your story from living outside of yourself to coming home to yourself. Yeah. Well, I just, you know, like you, I was a very good girl who wanted to do well in everyone's eyes. And that meant working very hard in school. And by the time I got to high school, doing a lot of extracurricular activities, and I developed insomnia as a teenager, like bad insomnia. Mm. And then my body started breaking down pretty dramatically, but I was a teenager, so I kept going. And then when I was 18, I was out running and I ran about a hundred miles a week for a few years there. And so I was doing wow. a 20 mile run and I was hit by a car, just glanced me, knocked me into a snowbank. And I got up and ran the 11 miles home. And then my hip froze up and it wouldn't, I went to a doctor and he said, just lie down until it gets better. 12 years later, I was still lying down and waiting for it to get better. And that was the initiation for me, as is often the case with people who suffer fibromyalgia. It was the onset of a long bout with fibromyalgia, which is kind of, it is a very, very real syndrome, but it's also el elusive, hard to pin down, yeah. hard to like, it's, it's not like you can say, we know what the virus is and we're going to kill it. You know, it, it's, okay. it sort of wafts around your body. But after years and years of living now, not only with that hard driving sort of psyche, but also with pain, constant chronic pain, other parts of my body started to break. And it was a big milestone for me when I got interstitial cystitis. Yay! All Painful. Of <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. being stabbed in the bladder with an ice pick and uh, it never stops. And in fact, this was, <laughs> I've told this story, when they, they did a surgery and checked it out and it was something, this, thank God, was something they could look at and say, there is definitely something wrong. In this case, trigger warning for everybody who's, who has bladder issues. <laughs> this one, it affected my bladder and it, the, the lining of the bladder just sort of breaks up. All of me was breaking up. And so the uric, uric acid going through it is incredibly painful. The doctor told me it was like pouring acid on a gun wound, a gunshot wound. So that gave me something where I said, oh, I really... I deserve to be sick because I'd been to millions of doctors and they were, well, I'd been to like 20 doctors and they were all, oh, you ladies, it's all in your head, you know? Oh, great. The sexism and the, the bias against anything they don't already know. It was all, everybody has a story, right? All of us yeah. with chronic pain. So I got this 
pamphlet on interstitial cystitis and how to cope with it. I was so excited. I finally had something with a real diagnosis. And I opened this booklet to a random page. And at the top of the page, it said, to keep from committing suicide, remind yourself of your religious beliefs. Oh, no. Oh, no. I was like, okay, that's the treatment for this disease I've got. So um, I was really, uh, I was really looking forward to a life of absolutely nothing but pain. And it just was hitting all my organs and started to, I have lesions on my skin that are like pre-diabetic and they never go away. But here's the thing. All these things are progressive, poorly understood and permanent. Like they don't go away. They told me they'd never go away. And then I just started living my life according to what felt joyful to me because it was the only way I could reduce the pain. There was less pain on certain days. And I started to notice what causes pain or what's correlated with pain. And what's, and I kept a diary every day. What did I do? And what were my pain levels? And I started to see these really clear patterns. Sounds so stupid in retrospect, because it literally is just, if I like it, I tend to feel better. If I don't like what I'm doing, I tend to feel worse. <laughs> but it was like, wait, wait. It takes me two years to really believe it. So I started only doing things I enjoy, which meant quitting my job, quitting my religion, quitting a lot of things. And um, sure enough, little by little, and sometimes suddenly and permanently, the symptoms just went away. I still have creakies. I still have to mind the store pretty well. But I live a really rich, full life that I never in a million years thought I could. So that's my story. So the coming home to your essential self and really honoring that, because I know you went to Harvard. Is that the period that you were really sick, that you were, that you were really going for all of this before you became a, a very well-known life coach? Oh, yeah. When I started following my essential self, that's when everything turned around. And that's when people started asking me to coach. No. The pain started when I was 18. So I'd done my freshman year at Harvard, but my sophomore year, I was in a back brace. I was on crutches. I was very, very badly affected. So from the time I was a teenager, right through all those degree programs, living with chronic pain, and it got worse all the time. But it was weird. I mean, I'm sure you can identify with this and your listeners know you, so they probably can too. It was easy for me to split myself. I compartmentalized the part of me that was experiencing physical pain and then the part that refused to care that I was experiencing physical pain and would just make me do things whether they were painful or not. And I called that part of me thing. went out <laughs> and got those Harvard degrees. And then I would come back to, and, and I had kids during, I got married and had children during that time too. And I would do what I had to during the day. And then I would lie in bed and I would be so rigid from tolerating the pain that when I started to relax, it was like an iceberg melting, like chunks of me felt like they were falling off and I would start to shake really violently and often cry as well because I was allowing myself to feel how much pain I'd been in all day. And that's just how I lived. You know, I, that's just was the way it was until I was 30 because the year I was 21, 29, I decided I wasn't going to tell a single lie for a whole year. And, yes. and that <laughs> brought me back, as you just said, to my essential self, to who I am in my essence. Like, what do I want? What do I love? What do I enjoy? What are my values? Mine, not cultures. And I moved away from my culture and toward my true nature. And that's what I call integrity, being whole again after being 
fragmented. And the process of getting whole became my life coaching methodology and career. And I'm still writing about it 30 years later. I just wrote a book called The Way of Integrity that did it was very, very well received more than any of my previous books because I think so many people have that fragmented condition and are in all kinds of pain, mental, emotional, physical, and have not been taught by the culture how to come become whole again, how to be one thing, which is what integrity means. And I know that's what you do too. So we're, we're both in the business of making people whole. And that's pretty good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the, your book is just, it's phenomenal. What I love so much about the way of integrity is it challenges your idea of what a lie is. Like you really yeah. break down like the varying uh, shades of lies that uh-huh. we both tell ourselves and others. I, I, yeah. Like, how are you today? I'm fine. and it's really funny because I was going to ask you in a coaching session because I think of a coaching session as not my space it's it's their space right Mm -hmm. and but in the past I've played around with the idea of being honest oh how are you today them I'm fine me how are you unique you know it's been an interesting day and then there's just dead silence <laughs> right <laughs> it's like wait you have bad days i'm like yeah <laughs> i've been better i've been worse what do you want to know yeah 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 but your book is really incredible and it's sparked oh, a lot of you. wonderful conversations just in my life and my family of the integrity cleanse the idea of not lying and i can't believe you did it for an entire year tell me about that once you get started, it has its own momentum. It's kind of like skiing. The problem is not getting going. The problem is slowing down and stopping. I was in so much pain and I was then depressed. And I just, I really was having trouble just putting one foot in front of the other anymore. It'd been a long time that I'd been in pain, more than 10 years already, mm-hmm. half my life, a third of my life. So no, that would be, that would be a third. Math was not my major. Just decided I had to do something drastic because I could not continue to live the way I was living. And all around me, people were saying the truth will set you free. I mean, Mormonism calls itself the one truth and says you have to believe that. The motto of Harvard is just the word truth in Latin, where he toss on on a shield. So everybody was talking about the truth. And I thought, well, have I ever been completely and totally truthful? I don't even know. I know there have been times when it wasn't but I don't know if I've ever been totally truthful. So I'm just going to try it for a year. And I was at a New Year's Eve party with a bunch of Mormons at the time because I was raised Mormon. And I told them my New Year's resolution and they all went pale and just said, don't, you can't not lie for a whole year. And I was like, wait, you guys are all like church people. But they knew if you told the truth, you know, shit was going to happen. Excuse my French. And it did. I was out of that religion within a couple of months, you know, (laughs) that's one of the things that happened. But it was, yeah, so it just kept going. And I ended up quitting my job because I didn't love that at all. And quitting my, my family of origin had a very negative reaction to my leaving Mormonism. I, I remembered episodes of sexual abuse in my childhood by my father, told the truth about that to some people in my family. That wasn't, you know, they were like that. Okay keep a lid on that. I had a friend who was a psychiatrist who was Mormon and I called her and I said, what do I do with these flashbacks and things? 
And she said, well, for anyone else, I would say, you know, go get therapy, get some help. But for you, that might damage the church. So you just have to keep it under your hat. So I was really pushed up against the places where I'd been forced to gloss over what was true for me. And I couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't. And when I started talking about that, like, then it got out as a rumor in the Mormon community. And I started getting like unsigned weird faxes threatening my life. And it's quite a year. So yeah, I quit my job. I quit my religion, realized I was gay. Quit So that even though I stayed, my husband and I co-parented our kids for a while, we, we sort of both came out at the same time. And so yeah, every aspect of my identity changed. Wow. Yeah, it was big time. Didn't sound very comfortable. It wasn't comfortable emotionally or psychologically or financially at all. And there was peace in my heart for the first time. There was clarity. There was, there were just deep breaths finally. And the pain in my body, that's when it began to evaporate. Yeah, not, not looking fun from the outside, but from the inside, it put everything in order. And my whole body started to say yes to life for the first time in a long time. I think you said something in one of your books that you know you're on the right path, not necessarily because it's easy, but because you feel free. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's what the Buddha used to say wherever you find a body of water, you can know it's the sea if it tastes of salt. Mm -hmm. And wherever you find your own enlightenment, which may look totally different in your life than it does in anyone else's, you can always rec recognize it when it's looking for you because it always tastes of freedom. And freedom is a terrifying thing. It exposes, it makes vulnerable, it, it calls for choice and responsibility. Freedom is a huge, terrifying legacy, and it's the path to happiness and realization of our right lives and everything else. So yeah, a lot of coaches get clients who want to feel good. And in our system, at least, it's like, okay, but let's talk about feeling free. Yeah. And there's the there's the interesting thing that I see in my practice because I can really help people feel really great, but if they haven't given up their kind of old relationship to food and and kind of feeding themselves poorly, then as soon as they feel good, they don't just mourn the old because I I know you talk a lot about that a lot where you get to the point in your transformation where you begin to mourn the old things, right? Yes. Where you're like, "Oh, I miss this about my old life." Right. And not everybody moves beyond the morning, the old. In fact, I've seen people revert back to the old because, Often. yeah, why is that? What happens there? Well, the metaphor I used throughout this last book, The Way of Integrity, is Dante's Divine Comedy, because I think that guy was a hell of a psychologist. And he talks about going into your, you know, facing your demons, going into the inferno and finding your own truth. But after that, everybody talks about the inferno. But the next step for him is to climb a mountain that is made from the rubble that that like hell is this huge pit and it, it like got hit by a meteor strike and piled up a mountain. So it's the, the direct opposite of going through hell to go to paradise. And to do that, you have to climb this mountain and at the base of it, it's very steep. It's very long. And so Dante talks about people who just walk in circles around the base over, you know, for centuries for their whole existence and it really made me think about people who go to therapy and they go to seminars and they go to ashrams, they do whatever, but they never actually change anything in their normal everyday life. And it's, 
it just circles the base of the the mountain. And to get up it, you have to really, really want to live your truth because as you move upward and you start to walk your talk, so now you know what your truth is. Like my truth is, I don't believe in Mormonism. Hmm. I've been a Mormon my whole life. It's the way of life I'm used to. I'm People in the community respect me. They'll hate me forever. They'll think I'm worse than a murderer if I leave the church. And I don't believe it. So what's the deal here? What am I going to do? And did it feel honest to remain even with the label Mormon? And it did not. It was like, you know, what I... Would I wear a Nazi cap if I <laughs> didn't like? I'm not saying that Mormons are Nazis, but it just felt wrong. It felt like a lie. So I stepped out of it and the backlash was horrendous. Again, lots of threats. People, my own neighbors whom I loved, you know, it, it was a very tight knit community. They would turn their backs when I walked by. No, you know, people would not turn their faces toward me. And that's pretty strange. That's pretty impactful on the part of your psyche that wants to be liked, especially if you're a people pleaser, like I was, am. But I wanted to be well so much that I was willing. And, and people have to be willing just to eat the right foods, you know, like there's all kinds of stuff that you have to mourn because the way we were doing it, it wasn't healthy. And you have to mourn if you stop eating junk food. And you have to be willing to say, no, I'm actually going to do this. I'm going to eat what she said and live like, you know, give it a try. And unless you do that, you'll never, you'll be okay, but you'll never get to paradise. Well, doing the work, I think, is the big part of it, right? Like you said, some people are just kind of like walking around the base, never really diving in and making the changes. So you can, you can do all of the right things on paper, go to therapy, go to the seminars, but but if facing yourself never happens, then you never actually proceed, as you put it, you know, in your book to the next yeah. gate and the next gate until you're free and you go through these challenges when you're pushed to either go backwards or move forward, that you continue to challenge yourself to move yeah. forward towards freedom, towards your essential self. But like you said, freedom is this incredible, well, in 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 both breaths, it, it's a burden in a sense, because what you had to do was, was take the steps to move away from the lies in your life, right? Yeah. Mormon did not, being a Mormon wasn't who you, re- when you, when you got close to your essential self, it sounds like that just wasn't who you were. And Not at all. I yeah. Believe the yeah. same things. Well, what it does, freedom takes away your, your ability to tell yourself that you're a victim. Like, mm-hmm. I remember when I was leaving Mormonism, someone said to me, don't, don't leave, make them excommunicate you. And then it's not your fault because they were excommunicating scholars for heresy, you know, whatever. And I was considered a scholar. And I was like, is it gonna, hey, it's my choice one way or another. I can lie and say that I believe all this stuff and, and let them excommunicate or and not be excommunicated or, or tell the truth and then wait for them to take arms against me. Or I can just leave. And it's my choice one way or the other. So freedom carries with it the burden of choice, the burden of uh, responsibility. And it takes away the cloak of victim. My friend Jill Bolte Taylor, who's a brain anatomist, says we have the part of our brain that's frightened and wants to do what we're used to, and the part of the brain that recognizes what's better for us. And when we deny the choice, we are leaving reality because we always have that choice. Yeah. And yeah, 
And and also living living the lie, you end up with people that are a lie, right? And you ended up in a community that as soon as you started to become your actual self, they turned their back on you because it wasn't your community. Your yeah. community from your essential self would never turn its back on you, right? Because it's no. in alignment and and it, it's a real community instead of like a makeshift, a, you know, a play community of like, oh, as long as you follow the rules, we accept you. But at the moment you show us, that you are questioning the rules or or growing differently that we no longer accept you that those aren't real friends that's not a real community right, right? Absolutely. like it's built on a house of cards yeah and i thought i mean i went there because i just had a baby with down syndrome and you know i was still getting my doctorate from harvard and when i chose not to terminate the pregnancy super late in the pregnancy is when the, he was diagnosed all my advisors and the doctors there told me you will lose everything and that's exactly what Mormons say. I just read in the paper some Mormon authority was saying, never, ever leave or you will lose everything. And I was told that in both places for very for opposite reasons. I basically ran back to Utah because I was pretty sure they'd be okay with the child with Down syndrome. And then it turned out I wasn't right for that either. I, I always say I went to Harvard to have a baby with a cognitive disability. And then I went back to Utah to become a lesbian and people ask me for advice. <laughs> well, because you tried out different lives, right? You, It's almost yeah. like you tried them out and you went, nope, that doesn't fit. Nope, that doesn't fit. Okay. So I have to create something that fits this thing that fits. I don't know it yet. So how do I begin to find this thing that fits and, and then find the people that fit this thing that I don't know what it is exactly yet that it fits, you know? Yeah, I don't. And you're, it works exactly as you're saying, but from the inside out, it feels just more like finding your way step by step. Mm -hmm. Like what's the next step up the mountain? And you know, by saying what's true for me right now, what's joyful for me right now? Mm -hmm. What, where am I making myself a victim? Oh, I have to go to that party. No, you don't. You can make a choice. You may get some blowback, but that is the consequence of exercising your liberty. So each step you take every day, and I really suggest that people don't go a whole lie without a whole year without telling a single lie because that is some stiff experience. You're going to like, there's going to be a stiff headwind there, <laughs> but you can just turn, look at your list of things to do and just say, is there any way to bring more joy to this list? Is there some, anything I don't want that I can eliminate? Is there something that I love that isn't there that could be, can I make this activity feel more joyful for my true self? And that's a very gentle, gradual way to return to the truth of your essence. So that's what I would, and I know you spend a lot of time helping people heal in the same way. I also just want to reference that you wrote the book, Expecting Adam, which was one of the first books I had read of yours. And I was just profoundly moved by the connection you had with Adam long before Adam was born. It was like this beautiful, magical connection that had already started to happen. Yeah, that's uh, that was a big reason that I didn't actually even consider terminating because I had, <laughs> from the moment I became pregnant, I felt when I didn't know I was pregnant, I started having these odd experiences that I can only call psychic. Mm -hmm. I know that's, that again, <laughs> is not something you shout about at Harvard and get a lot of approval, but mm -hmm. there I was at Harvard having psychic experiences and uh, they got very intense during that pregnancy. And then he, he sort of took them with him when he left, but oh. I have a tiny bit remaining. Oh, I was curious about that, actually, of how much of that you would. But it also sounds like maybe, you know, from reading your books, I feel like what I've gotten from your books is everything leads you back home. 
back to yourself. All of your books le- try to le- really try to help the reader come home to themselves and challenge what that might mean and, and really getting honest. The, that has been the theme for me with your books. I'm like, you nailed it. You actually, I, I don't remember, but I think several books that I've written end with the word home. Mm. And because I, I remember thinking in my early 30s, after all this happened, like all I care about anymore is bringing people home because I'd felt so completely alienated and, and out, not outcast in the sense of other people, but lost, 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 lost the way Dante is at the beginning of the Divine Comedy. And to come home after being lost was so sweet. And the thought of other people being lost was so terrible that I just thought, I have to spend the rest of my life doing this, just bringing people home any way I can. And you do like your books, Finding Your North Star. I remember it's funny because I had done that before I went to a training with you for life coaching and I was filling in all of the things. And what I loved, what I love, continue to love about your work is that it's listening to your body. It's climbing back into your body instead of living out there for other people, for other things, worried all the time, beginning to climb back into your body and ask your body, is this, is this what I want? Is this, and then listening to your body when it speaks to you, you know, in, in one of the, I don't know if it was a clip that you had recorded talking about one of your clients that they were, oh, it was in Finding Your North Star. They were so outside of their body that they didn't feel anything. And, and you looked and you went, no, you basically, this person feels so much that they're numb and they feel so much that they're not listening to that they're numb. So for those who feel numb, like it's not a lack of feeling, it's, probably almost a feeling of too much, right? Yeah. And it's that compartmentalization that I was using to get through the day. And you'll notice that for me, when I was alone at night, I could let the truth of my body back into my conscious awareness. And so if you find that you are completely numb and you get by yourself for a period of time, even if you take, like it takes a couple of days, I think for some people go on a vacation if that's possible, Get go visit someone, a friend, and take two or three days. One of my friends and a brilliant master coach, Boyd Vardy, says he comes from Africa. He grew up in the bush. And he says, culture is three days deep. If you get away from the place you've been socialized for three days, everything starts to melt away and the animal body steps forward. And that animal, by the way, is far more sophisticated than our thinking minds. Its signals are way more subtle and and complex than anything we can think in words. And so every little signal that's coming from the body deserves attention and, and deserves to be registered as part of your vast intelligence. And yeah, listening to it in humility, the brain, the, the cognitive brain should sort of bow to the incredible wisdom of the body because it's just much more sophisticated. Yeah. I I think in Diane herself, I love that book, by the way, obviously (laughs) fangirling over here was really, again, the journey home, the journey back to herself, the the part of herself that was wild and and wanting to reconnect and the social self that was constantly quieting this incredible human, this incredible connected intuitive person and, and how you really beautifully take the reader through her awakening to herself and and kind of the bewilderment of it all. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you like it. And yes, I love the word bewildered yes. because it's a pun. It means be wilder. Mm-hmm. And that's why my podcast is called Bewildered because it's all about 
ways that you can find the places where culture is is pulling you off true. Not that even now nobody's trying to be a villain here. Nobody's forcing you, but we're all pushed by cultural pressures away from what's true for us, for our bodies and ourselves. And when we reclaim that, we're a little bit wilder, but to the culture, it's bewildering. And someone recently told me that they'd been talking to someone in Utah about me and because my family is well known in Mormonism. And they said that I was baffling. And I was like, (laughs) how do I feel about being baffling? And I thought, I like being baffling because it means that I'm not in any cultural pattern. They can't say, okay, all right, she's a radical feminist. She's an anti-abortionist. She's, you know, they can put, oh, you write about this. Oh, you're a self-help guru. You're, And then I do something that is completely, like I wrote only self-help. And then, as you said, I wrote Diana herself, which is a novel about a woman and a pig. And that baffled my agent, my publishers. And I was just like, I don't care. I just want to write this book about a woman and a pig because it feels true to me. And I, I'm not going back to hurting all the time. I know what happens when you don't stay true to yourself. And it, it's physically painful. And unlike other people, I don't like pain. It hurts me. <laughs> it's well, it, and I, yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable. But, but again, the theme for me was back to yourself. Everything I read of yours leads me back to myself. When I am confused or anxious, even before this um, podcast today, I was laying on the floor, climbing back into my body, getting centered, getting ready, just like, okay, just, you know, be yourself, walk into it yourself. That's wonderful. And it can be very helpful to talk kindly to yourself. Like if you're going to use, if you have a socialized brain, use it as a way of having a conversation with your true self. And you can say something like, oh, you seem, you seem really anxious. Well, that's understandable. Never negate what your body and your heart are telling you because they, they never do it without a reason. And things always get a little better if you use your mind as kind of the, <laughs> the servant, but also the grown up mm-hmm. who says, oh, look, tell me everything you're feeling. Like, really tell me everything. That sounds terrible. Tell me more. Tell me more. And then the, so the, the nervous self or the frightened self can say, oh, there's going to be a nuclear war between Russia and the U.S. or whatever. <clears throat> and then instead of freaking out with your mind as well, you can say, oh, what is that making you feel? That is certainly a frightening story. How are you feeling? And you'll find tension someplace in the body. And then you'll say, ah, this, this, okay, this feeling, that is the not true feeling. When something causes clenching, tightness, sickness, a sense of dread and loathing, it's like, oh, that's, that's not the true feeling. When you have a truth that's hard, like you were sexually abused, you need to leave your community of origin, that's hard, but it felt freeing. So the mind eventually said, okay, I see your point. I guess we better go. So if you can use the mind to support and love the sensations of the body, the heart, and the spirit. It comes last in order of importance, but we can also use it deliberately to make the others more important. Does that make sense? I think so. Maybe say more about that. Well, it's like we've been putting, the the cognitive mind has been put in charge of our lives in this culture, right? right? And the problem is that the cognitive mind follows the culture and not the individual and unique path of the individual human. So the mind is very easily, it's very easily 
conned into believing whatever the people around you say. And the heart, the spirit, and the body will go rigid and resistant and cause as many, they'll scream no in as many ways as they have physical pain, emotional pain, a sense of confusion, inability to memory fog, all kinds of things happen when we're trying to go the way our mind says we should. And most of us use our mind to say, stop that. Don't be so weak. Here, I'll give you six different, you know, pills that'll make you at least live up to your commitments or whatever. So the mind is like the cruel boss of this system of, of very gentle and delicate animals. And if you say instead that my mind is going to become an animal lover and I will listen to everything my body says, everything my soul says, everything my heart says, and I will ask these parts of myself, what are you feeling? Instead of looking at the culture and saying, what do you want? So if you go inward, you can go as deeply inward, as far inward with your examination as you could if you had a telescope that took you outward into the universe. There's an infinite depth within you. And if you use your mind for that, it starts to pull away from the culture and be attuned partly to your own nature, but also to nature itself, capital N, to reality, the way it is. And the weird thing then is not only does your body heal, but your life becomes different. Things, elements of life interacting with you start to soften and become more benevolent and become less frightening. So you do, you're, all you're doing is listening to the parts of yourself that aren't your mind. And when the mind takes that as its major job and serving that as its major job, you transform yourself, you transform your circumstances, and you also become a, a, an opening that brings this kind of benevolence, this kind of gentleness into the world, which desperately needs it. Yes. Okay. So I understand the brain is wonderful for inquiry, for, for, for curiosity to, to look with curiosity instead of this judgment and this fear. I know you also talk a lot about the little reptile brain a lot that hops in there and like, you're never going to be good enough. And that's what mine says. So to use the brain as part of the inquiry that gets you back into in touch with your essential self. Well, the mind is different from the brain because the brain, the mind. if you look at your whole nervous system, the brain is part of it, but it's connected to every nerve in your body. Right. So all the information of the body is, the body is an extended brain. Right. The part that takes over is specifically the neocortex, the top surface of the brain where we do logic and language, and specifically the left side of the, of the neocortex. On the right, when we start to access the body, say we do it with our senses, you can drop into your body just by, and I do this a lot with my coaches, so you, I'm sure I've been through it many times. Make a list of five things you love with each of your senses. So taste, smell, like you can do it if you're listening to this right now and you've never done it. Write down five things you love to smell, five things you love to see, five things you love to hear, and so on. Touch, taste. And, as, and then imagine each of these experiences and you can feel that as you drop into a sensory experience of life instead of a verbal experience of life, cognitive, there's a softening through the whole body and the brain doesn't have to hold on, the mind doesn't have to hold on to circumstances as tightly. It can enjoy the sensory beauty of the world 
And that, I believe, is the animal's main desire to just enjoy the experience of being in this physical form in this world. And when you drop the mind away and you're in the present moment, 90% of your life is just going to be pleasant. I don't think a lot of people actually know what that's like, that pleasantness, you know. Yeah, that. I mean, pleasant, that's, that's too small a word. I mean, it is, it, it's very ordinary, you know. Mm. It's not like fireworks and, and explosions all the time. It's this very deep relaxation. If you've ever lain in a really soft bed after you've had, you know, enough exercise to be tired and you've been cold and now you're warm and you had a yummy dinner, so you're feeling good. And just the sense of being in that bed. I honestly think that those things, when we come to the hour of our death and we do our life reviews, the way they say that you do when you have a near-death experience, you're going to look at that moment in the bed and go, wow, wow, (laughs) what an amazing experience that was. Holy crap, an ordinary day if you really take it in. Amazing. Extraordinary. uh, Yeah. (laughs) And most of us don't take it in. Where I think this fast-paced life that we live in and um, our ability to travel places just from our computer, there isn't a lot of time sen- uh, spent just with self and feeling self and connecting with self. And some of the access tools that you provide, both in your coaching course and in your books, actually allow people to take that moment to access themselves yeah. in a world that feels like it's going you know, a mile a minute. And it is. If you if you if you sit there and scroll, an hour can disappear in a blink of so an eye. Fast. But people yeah. can't meditate for an hour. It, you know, I can meditate for twenty minutes at a time. I'm working on it. But you know, it takes a certain amount of just letting go to also access our essential selves. Is what I found. And again, you know, I can't tell my listeners enough to to read your books and to even contemplate signing up to do life coach training with you not because they need to be a life coach themselves, but just the whole course is a practice of coming home and the tools it takes to come home. Yeah. And I just found that if you really thoroughly train someone to come home, they automatically become able to help other people. So why not call them life coaches if they want it? Because they are. But I really love what you said about time, taking time and how we don't voluntarily give ourselves time to simply check in. And I, I was listening to, there's a terrific book out right now called Atomic Habits. It's really <laughs> popular, James Clear. Love him. And it's, it, I love, I, he has lots of great strategies and I use some of them and I've learned some from him that I'm going to add. But it's so cute because he always says, okay, I'm going to put in my schedule that I'm going to meditate for one minute every morning. And I do it. And I, it's not like that's not helpful. It is, but <laughs> one minute, it's like saying, yes, I will eat one calorie today. Like first, it, there's, you have to have the luxury of time for self-reflection. And the thing that you're saying, which is so true, is that there's no blank time. Like if we're out, culture is three days deep. If you go out into the, into the wilderness your mind is going so fast. And after three days, it's like, ah, and your senses seem to, they don't speed up as much as open wider and the mind becomes quieter and it says less, but then we start to feel the bliss of being the bliss of existence. And that to me, you know, after those years of pain, and I know a lot of your listeners have been in a lot of pain and discomfort their whole lives 
the bliss of being, you know, the opposite of physical pain, the, the experience of being in a physical body, human body that feels good. We just gloss over that like it's nothing. After you've spent 12 years in pain or whatever, you don't gloss it over. I lie in bed every night and go, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Last night, I, I tripped over a baby gate and I fell on my knee and I was like, uh-oh, pain. I know what pain is like. And then I iced it and I put some Arnica oil on it and I lay in bed and I waited to see if it would hurt and it did not. And I was just like, oh, this is the best. My <laughs> knee doesn't, I don't even have to worry about my knee hurting. My whole body doesn't hurt. At the same time, it doesn't hurt. I, I haven't been in chronic pain for another 20 years, but I just cannot get over how great it is. I'm with you. I have been in remission for, it took me a year and a half to go into remission. So it's been about seven and a half years that I've been pain-free and, and flare-free for my autoimmune disorder. And there isn't still not a day that I get up or go to bed that I'm thankful. You know, I'm thankful for the whole the whole journey, the 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 chronic illness that I had. It woke me up that I was just living in the wrong direction. I was Ooh, good yeah, praise. I was living in the wrong direction and and was so far down the rabbit hole of everyone else and this is what you do that I wasn't even aware that my body had been knocking the whole time going, hey. Psst, over here, yep. this doesn't work yep. for you and you don't know it, but it doesn't work for you and you need to course correct. And I was like, I don't even know what you're saying. It's like another language. I'm doing all the right stuff. Okay. And, you know, it was like this absolute, it was such a disconnect that it took wow. an inflammatory bowel disease to body slam me, shake me around until finally I was just, I was just humbled to my knees and, wow. and saying, I'll do whatever it takes. Mm. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm that. Yeah. I'm I'm laying on rock bottom and and I was 30 years old and rapidly losing weight and sleep and just deteriorating. Just I call it the least sexy years of my life. <laughs> Bowel disease means you're running to the bathroom 16 times, not sexy. So, but it I was so unaware of my essential self. I was so, I had so blocked it out that it took that to wake me up. And in that process, it, it led me home along with, again, a lot of the access tools that you provided in your books of really inquiring, is this, is this really what I want with my life? And the answer always came back, no. And did you start out like, it sounds like we were in pretty much exactly the same place when when I stopped lying what did you do what was the first thing did you like was there a moment when you suddenly went oh I get this I'm going to listen to my body and start changing my behavior it was, was slow it was slow it was I had a lot of self-loathing and so the further I got away from myself the better things got it felt like you know it was like the lie sure. right oh sure the, go this way. She's doing that. That looks good. I'll do that. It was never, right. hey, how do you feel about this body? And and how do you feel about this self, true self, another name? But in the process of being awake for 22 hours a day for years, I was able to listen to a lot of books. I was able to, yeah, it was, it, and I was in really horrible pain. And in that process, I came face to face with my self-loathing and mm. 
there was a moment in the journey where I was, I'm five, seven and I was 90 pounds. Wow. And I was looking at, I would avoid mirrors and photographs my family would want to take. And I was standing there naked looking in the mirror and I was just skin and bone and hair falling out and rashes. And that was the moment I fell in love with myself. That was like, look at you. You're fighting for something. You're fighting for yourself. You're amazing. Old me would have been like, you're horrible. Look at you. Like, it, but it was the medicine I needed. You know, I was, yeah. I was never thin enough. And, and here I was, my body giving me, oh, you wanted to be thin? Here right. you go. Here's the medicine you need, wow. you know, to be so skinny that, and not be able to eat, to be starving to death and not be able to eat. Right. So it was like oh. this, it was my inferno. Yeah. And in the years of my inferno, I, came face to face with myself. And and it's an interesting thing, and I would love your thoughts on it, of the old self. I think I had this idea that once you work through these old lies and these concepts, that they just go away. But it's interesting in the moments they come up for me. And, I, and I'm fascinated by it because I go, oh, oh, hello. There you right. are. Hello, you. I thought you were like gone. <laughs> <laughs> like a vampire, I exposed you to the light of day. You know? <laughs> well, the brain has something called a negativity bias, where it's mm. always scanning for things that could be dangerous and then imagining things that could be dangerous. And unless you're constantly spring cleaning, that, kind, that can kind of creep back. I, I, Byron Katie is one of the people that I know who is most free from all kinds of suffering through her search for truth. And she had kind of an enlightenment experience where she she was suffering and then she completely stopped suffering and she never went back to suffering. But I asked her once, if you didn't constantly clear out the misperceptions that creep back, would you go back to being like you were prior to your big event? And she said, yeah, I have to keep cleaning it out. So don't feel like a failure if you've reached a point where you feel totally clear and peaceful and then your old things start coming back again. But it's just like you said, Unique, it's, you don't get rid of your neuroses, but you make friends with them. And then here they come and you think, oh, never good enough. And you, you pick that child self up and you tickle their tummy and say, really? Never good enough? You sure? They don't go away. They don't go away. So the, the primary task you have is to treat them all with compassion. To, as you said, to fall in love with the parts of yourself that look unattractive and, and they're inappropriate or whatever. It's always about taking a position of compassion to whatever is real in the moment. And if what's real in the moment is that you're into self-criticism again, you actually, instead of saying no self-criticism, which is pushing against what is happening and makes it worse, now you're criticizing yourself for criticizing yourself and it escalates. Instead, it's like, oh, there's self-criticism. How are you, honey? Come in, sit down. Are you really, okay, what do you really feel like doing? Like, do you really feel like making me feel crappy? Or is there something else that would, would you like a nap? And that kind of continuous kindness for the self, it requires a lot of agile thinking, frankly. So you're now taking that mind that it is the curse of your early life and you're turning it into a real expert at keeping you healthy. And you do it by by always having it check in with heart and soul first when it approaches the body. How do you feel? What are your instincts telling you? Yeah. It will always give you the answer. Always. 
Yeah. And, and, and I loved dismantling the idea that once you, once you work on something, once you bring it into the light, once you love the small parts of yourselves that are scared and that reptilian side of the brain, that it doesn't mean it just goes away. It means that those things will come up and, and, and that you just love them. Like, I just love them. I just go, oh, hello. I understand. Yeah. Hello. I mean, Ram Das, a really brilliant spiritual practitioner who his first name was Richard Alpert. And he was at Harvard in the 60s. And then he went and became a, I think he became a guru and he took the name Ram Das. But he used to say, you know, his, he'd sit down to meditate every day and here would come the same complaints and the same neuroses marching in a row. And as they came, he would say, hi, how you doing? How are, oh, you're very strong today. Have a seat. Come on. And it just, like for me, one of the things I like to remind myself is that I'm very perfectionistic. It's just that I no longer care. So here comes my (laughs) perfectionism. I care intensely whether something's perfect and I watch it. And just when I'm clenching down on something not being perfect, I, another part of me goes, oh, hello, perfectionist. How you doing? Sit down. I don't believe you, but you're welcome. And like, there's just a general festival of welcome inside yourself, even for the parts that are dysfunctional, that are creating pain, that are attacking. You just love them all and things settle down. Do you think there is a driver of perfectionism? Because like, and if, and if there were one, what would you say would drives perfectionism? It depends. I mean, sometimes there's there's something called the rage to master that you see in little kids where they're passionate about learning something. And I don't think that that is, I think that's a drive from within. Like one of my daughters had this overwhelming urge to play the piano at four and then to play the flute at seven. And I never did anything to put that into her mind or into her heart, but it was intense. When she was seven, she came and she said, I need a flute. And I said, why? And she said, do, any, do your friends have flutes or anything? She said, no, there's a sound I have to make and you can only make it with a flute. And I was like, all right then. So that's one driver, the joy of mastery and creating beauty and all of that. And that's what happens to me when I'm painting. Then there's another thing that is, will people like it? How will this go over with the rest of the folks? Like, And that brings in shame. It brings in avoiding other people. It brings in self-defensiveness. And that kind of drive is all from the social side. And I actually think we'd be better off if we had very little of it. I mean, just enough to keep our clothes on. (laughs) (laughs) We're not. We're not. Yeah. Yeah. And I said that. Just play all the volleyball you want. (laughs) Absolutely. Just hang out there. So if you are one of my listeners and you are struggling to uh, access your essential self, what, what would you suggest? Well, there's a, one phrase in my book, which tends to create this ring of truth in people. I've tried all kinds of different things that you can say. And this is the one that's most powerful at sort of reminding people who they are and of bringing themselves home. And the phrase is, I am meant to live in peace. Mm-hmm. So wherever you are, whatever you're feeling, going through a divorce, illness, whatever it is, just repeat to yourself over and over, I am meant to live in peace. I am meant to live in peace. And don't try to force a reaction to it. Just keep saying it. And you don't have to believe it. Just feel what it does. Feel how it affects you. 
And that feeling for everyone I've ever worked with has brought them into a place that feels most like home. And because it's saying peace is your home, that's where you're meant to live. And what I've found is that as I've moved more and more into my home and I've stayed there longer, all the things I ask the universe for, whatever blessings I request from the force or whatever, they're always sent and they're always sent right away, but they only go to my real home address, which is peace. And when I go back to peace, just to have peace, all these miracles and magical appearing things happen to bring me what I've always wanted all my life. So that's the deepest magic I know. Well, thank you, because you, your existence, your work, your courses has been an incredible, like I said, access to go to getting back home for me. And I just appreciate you being your authentic self and sharing your authentic self with all of us. All right, back at you. I mean, we've, we met 15 years ago and look what you've done with yourself since then. You have just, it's just wonderful to cross paths with someone a few times in the world and then watch how far they can take just a little bit of information, a little bit of encouragement and look at you go, girl. Wow. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And I will continue to fangirl from the side. <laughs> and for back at you. That's, we will fangirl each other. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you.